And now again, welcome to the latest episode of the Global Gale podcast. And you know what? The minute you say it, that just goes completely out the window because you could be listening to this in 2025. And it's not at all the latest episode of the Global Gale podcast. But I'm leaving it in there. I was only thinking about that actually just before starting to record. My name is Philip O'Connor, by the way. If this is your first time listening, you're very welcome. Uh, as you might have gathered from the opening, there's a whole bunch of other episodes there for you to listen to if you want to. Uh, a bunch of fascinating tales from Irish people all over the globe. But just as I was beginning to record, my friends, I was thinking about how um, uh, we're just coming out of the Christmas season there, you know. And I'm in Stockholm in Sweden, have been so far. This is my coming up my 24th year here now in Sweden. And you kind of tend to think of, oh, this time of the year, it's winter. But your Jesus, half of are listening down below in Melbourne and you are delighted with yourselves because you are on the beach every day in Sydney or Melbourne or Perth or in New Zealand enjoying the fine weather. You can't get enough of the barbecue despite the fact that we're only a few weeks removed from having our turkey. So there you go. You have to be conscious of the fact uh, that not everybody is experiencing the same thing you are when you're in the podcast business. I hope you're well. I hope you're back to work. I hope uh, if you did have the chance to go home and meet your nearest and dearest in Ireland that you did that and that if you did that you had a great Christmas, great New Year, great start to the New Year, wherever you were. Uh, the podcast going from strength to strength. We're going to keep it going that way. If you can, go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. Throw in a five of a month, lads, right? There's very few few places left in the world, at least the places I'm allowed into anyway, where you can even get a pint these days for a fiver. So, um... What you will get off me for that fiver is you will get at least eight podcasts a month. Four of them, at least, are Global Gale podcasts, like the one you're listening to now. There's another four for the Irish community called Irish in Sweden. There's two other podcasts on the same feed. Jesus, I'm going to spawn you rotten. Uh, and they're a little bit more sort of ad hoc, right? So they come when I have somebody to talk to and when I have a story there. So one is Our Man in Stockholm, and it talks about media and stuff from the perspective of Sweden or from where I'm sitting in Sweden. And the other is called Premier Swedes. And Every time I get hold of a footballer, a Swedish footballer who's played in the Premier League, I sit down with them for 35 minutes, 45 minutes, and I talk about their careers because uh, I don't know if you remember, if you're into soccer at all, you'll remember that, especially in the 90s when the Premier League was starting. Uh, there was loads of Swedish and Scandinavian players in there. So I'm trying to talk to all of them. And indeed, uh, Roland Nielsen, who used to play for Sheffield Wednesday and for Coventry City, has been done. Anders Limpar has been done. And there's another player coming up now in a couple of weeks' time and going to, to go and see him on the west coast of Sweden. So, and you know what? I'll keep trying to get Zlatan and all the other players, etc., etc. There is a bit of a sporting theme to this week's podcast. But before we get into this week's guest, I want to throw out the net, right? Been a bit of a sausage fest, lads and ladies, right? There's an awful lot of men on the podcast podcast and this always happens right no matter what good intentions you happen to have it's always easier to get lads to talk about their lives abroad than it is to get women now who knows maybe there are more irish uh, more irish men or more um, men of irish extraction in our community around the world who knows i doubt it because every time i look on facebook i see a couple of girls in their 20s or 30s looking for accommodation in in various places in australia so i know you're out there and i know you have stories because i started this podcast saying that there's no such thing as an or, or, an ordinary irish person abroad right so whatever you're doing and if you have any sort of a story that you think i would like to hear get in touch because I'd love to be able to tell it, right? And as I say, women just tend to be that little bit shyer about it. You know, lads are like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'd be fascinating. Put me on there, you know? So it's easy enough to get the fellas. Not that anybody's ever done that, but that's the way most of us think, lads. Let's admit it, you know? So, um... If there are women out there, it doesn't matter what you're doing, if it's sport, if it's the arts, if it's academia, I, don't get, just get in touch and we'll have a chat and we'll see if we can do an interview, 35, 40 minutes, and make that of interest to the Irish people around the world because we do want to have some sort of gender balance here. But this week I have a guest who's actually somebody that I've known for quite a long time and he is, in my opinion, uh, one of the most important people in the GAA, right? Now, you may never heard of his name if you're not involved in the GEA in Europe, because that's where he's done most of his good work. But I guarantee you, if you are involved in the GEA in Europe, you will know who Tony Bass is. Now, Tony will tell you his own story uh, in a few minutes when we put in the interview here. But he's basically been the, sort of the backbone of much that is good and the growth of the GEA, uh, both you know in terms of his own ideas, but also in terms of implementing others. He's done everything. He's played the games. He's refereed. He's coaching now, one of the first paid coaches in Europe, as far as I know. He's organised tournaments. He's been part of every board you can imagine, from his club to his region to the European, to, to being a delegate on the GEA Central Council and all sorts of mad shit. And I've worked alongside him in those 
those um, various different positions. I've been on the, the European County Board myself for a couple of years, and I'm not the kind of bloke who has a lot of patience for that kind of thing. Tony's great because, you know, I think at his core, he'd probably admit that he's a diplomat. He's the kind of people who can get people to work together and uh, and not, you know, annoy everybody, whereas I'm just not that kind of person at all. You'll know how annoying I can be. Like, So, uh, yeah, so I decided I was going to sit down and have a chat with Tony. Now, I do want to warn you, right? Uh, it's a little mental health warning for this interview. He does mention his own mental health troubles. It's not something that we delve very deeply into, but he does mention that on two occasions he did try to take his own life, and he explains that he suffers from bipolar disorder, or that he lives maybe with bipolar disorder is a better uh, description of that, you know? So, um, it, like, have a listen there. It's just something that pops up. Hopefully it won't shock you or upset you too much, but I'm just pointing out that he is going to bring that up at some point during our conversation. And do you know what? If nothing else... I really appreciate Tony as a person because of that kind of honesty, that he really has gone on a long journey in terms of, and you'll hear it in the story of, you know, how he got to where he is today and how he became the man he is today and did all the things that he does today. And part of that journey has been not necessarily owning up to it, but accepting the struggles that he has been through. And still with all these things, he's managed to do great things for the rest of us in certainly in the European Irish community. But I'd, I'd have to say that he does, he's done it for the global Irish community as well, because that's just how important the work with the GAA has been. So here he is from Maastricht in the Netherlands, from his little kitchen over there. This is Tony Bass about the GAA and all the great things that have been done for the Gales abroad with the size 5 and the size 4 and the schlitter in his hand. This could end up being the longest episode of the Global Gale to date. So Tony, let's start at the very beginning. When did you leave Ireland and why? Um... Uh, well, I didn't rob a bank or anything. Um, On the run from a library to... fine, like me, good self. You know? <laughs> yeah, God, I wonder have I paid them all. Um, <laughs> so uh, I left in October 2004 and um, arrived in Maastricht. And uh, I was I was a civil servant in Ireland. I'd worked in eight different ministries and uh, been an advisor and stuff to ministers and things like that and, and a press officer and you name it. I'd, I'd had 16 different positions in 30 years in civil service which is a bit atypical, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I was seconded to a European Institute of Public Administration in Maastricht as an Irish civil servant in 2004. And uh, so I came over then and originally was for two years with an option to extend for two. Um, and I just uh, got separated in Ireland just before, about a year before I, I came over. So it sort of suited me. Um, and uh, I did the two years. And in the meantime, um yeah, I, I like Maastricht, I like setting down. It was sort of a, you know, a new beginning, if you like. And, um, and then I met uh, my partner, um, who's Dutch. Um, so I decided to take up the option of the extra two years. At the end of four years, nobody applied for it in the Department of uh, Public Expenditure, where I was based. And, and it was a, a position that was on offer to people from that ministry or that department, as we call them in Ireland. So I got an extra two years out of it. And at the end of six years, I, I got the crooked finger, time to come home. And um, I had sort of decided I wasn't going to. So um, I took career break. And when I hit 50, then I, I cashed in the pension. Yeah. And uh, sort of living off the pension and, and doing a bit of freelance work ever since. Did you expect, when you went to Maastricht first, you know, I remember you being separated around that time, and you went to Maastricht first, was that really sort of, you know, did you see yourself being out of Ireland pretty much for, you know, the last 10 or 15 years now since you left? No, probably when I came over first, I, I probably was going to do the four years anyway, um, mm. because you know, sort of, it it just life life cycle wise, it just suited me at that stage, and um, yeah, I was on assignment from Ireland, so I was getting you know a, you know foreign allowances and things like that for being based abroad, mm. so financially it sort of suited me anyway, um, but yeah, I I, I wouldn't have I, I wouldn't have seen myself uh, over here. I mean. I remember saying to them back in, in my GA club in, in uh, Ireland and Kula, you know, that I'd see them in a few years, you know. Hmm. Um, I had just done 10 years as secretary in the club. And uh, yeah, I, I was secretary when I, when I left, I handed it over. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't have thought I'd be away for as long, no. 
Mm-hmm. But here we are nearly 20 years later, you know. It's amazing how time just catches up on you like that. You go, yeah, when did I? I left in 1999. Like, and all of a sudden, it's yeah. after 24 years this year. It's just ridiculous how quickly it goes, you know. And yeah. you went to Maastricht, which, let's be fair, Tony, right? It's not the sexiest city on the European map, right? So what no. appealed to you about it when you got there? Oh, he's got to mount the defence, ladies and gentlemen. Here he goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I suppose when I arrived here, I, I mean, I'd only been, I, I'd, I'd actually visited the place where, where I was working a, a few times for training programs. That's what they do, training programs for public service around Europe. Um, so I'd encountered the city a little bit. It's a lovely, it's a small city. It's about 120,000 people, um, but it has everything you need. And it's the oldest city in the Netherlands. So it goes back to Roman times, cobblestone streets in the, in the city centre, that sort of thing. And I just really loved it. I settled in made friends very quickly, um, set up a GA club within a few months, uh, which attracted people from various nationalities. Uh, that probably kept me a little bit, you know, sane, like I had something to do outside of work. Um, and I was traveling a lot at the time. And even since then, obviously, when I went freelance, then I actually picked up a, a contract running a, an EU anti-corruption project uh, in the Western Balkans. Uh, which was, um, well, it was part of an anti-corruption programme. Uh, but I, I was actually supporting the establishment of a school of public administration for the Western Balkans for two years. Um, so I did that. So that I was only, I was coming, Maastricht was base, but I was living in uh, Podgorica and working in a little office, in, in uh, sorry, an office in a little place called Danilovgrad, just outside Podgorica. But I was working between um, all of the Western Balkan countries like Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Kosovo, Albania, Macedonia, well, um, Macedonia um, and initially there was a Croatia involved and then they joined the EU so they were out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, technically Turkey was part of it but we didn't do much with it or Turkey or whatever it is. <laughs> Turkey, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, so um, I, I did that and then, you know, I, I was after that, then I was doing short term, you know, a week here, a couple of weeks there. And then I got a contract, went to Myanmar for a few months, uh, which was very interesting. Uh, and then I came back and I suppose at that stage I knew I was never going to be going back to Ireland. So, you know, sort of putting down roots here and yeah, very happy. I'm glad I came here. I mean, I've been to what, about 80 countries around the world. I've worked in about 60. And, um, you know, I realized actually no matter where I've been, I'd yet to find a place that was better organised and as easy to live in as Netherlands or Holland, you know. Mm. So I was quite happy here and I'm still here. It does. It is one of those kind of places, or like it's. It reminds me a lot of Denmark, right? Because Denmark are unique among the Scandinavians because they're very forthright, right? So if they think you're an idiot, they'll tell you you're an idiot, you know. Yeah. And yet, you know, that pragmatism means that things actually do work very well on a day to day basis, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's very much that way, you know, like, I mean, it was the little things when I came here, I couldn't, I was amazed, like, when you go out for the bus, it's always on time. Mm. Um, like, if it's not there, like, you'd almost have a public inquiry, you know, <laughs> um, and like, you're sitting on the bus, and if he's a minute early, he stops at the stop and waits mm. until he's back on schedule. And if he's be- a minute behind schedule, you'll see him going a bit faster to catch up, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, there are electric buses and everything now here. You know, it's just everything's just runs really well. Now, having said that, as you say, the, the Dutch are very direct. Although where I live in Limburg, um, they call it Limbabwe, by the way, in the in, in Netherlands. Um, <laughs> because they regard everyone in, it's the southernmost province. We're right down on the border with Belgium and Germany. Like I'm literally looking out the window across the river. I can see Belgium. Wow. Um, and I could literally walk to Belgium for lunch and I could cycle to Germany for dinner in the evening, you know, if I wanted to. And, um, you know, Aachen is only 25, 30 minutes away from me yeah. in, in Germany. Liège, big city, second biggest city in, in Belgium, or is it third? I can't remember now, is uh, about 15 minutes in the other direction, you know. And do you ever do that, Tony? Do you ever get the, the notion that, geez, I'm going to go to Germany just for the crack and get a few beers or, or go well, over to Belgium? You know, you go over, I go over to Germany now and again to do a bit of shopping, like all the toiletries and things like that are all cheaper in Germany, you know? Right. Um, and if you want a good Italian meal, you go to Liège. Um, Liège is it's a funny old place in that, in, in the just after the Second World War, there was a lot of uh, Italians came there for the mining and industry mm-hmm. that was based around Liège. I, in actual fact, I had a funny experience there a few years back um, Ireland played Italy for an Italian home game in Liège. Apparently, they play one there about every 10 years because mm. of the, the large Italian community. Uh, so I remember we went down to uh, get a few tickets for the game. Trapattoni was actually managing Ireland at the time. Oh, and um, 
So we went down, I, I remember driving down to Wednesday, got a bunch of tickets for all the lads in Maastricht. And when we went down to the match, says, oh, you can't go in there, you know, because I bought tickets on the halfway line. Yeah. Uh, I said, no, 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 you're the away team. So we, we had to go all the way down to one end, upstairs, and into a sort of a cage in the upper deck. Jeez. And of course, when I went in there, half the people in there I knew because there was, there was obviously, you know, the, the people from Maastricht. And then I'd say most of the rest of the people in the crowd were probably from the Brussels GA club. Exactly, um, yeah. So, so uh, you know, and then afterwards, of course, we were all you know, I went for a few drinks in the bars with the Italians, and everyone was having great fun, you know. But it's just the way it is, you know. It's just the way it's organised. Uh, so that was a, an interesting experience. And Ireland won, of course. I think it was two 0 or two one. They remember. did indeed, and it was. I think that was just before one of the major tournaments as well. And the Italians weren't one bit happy about that, if I remember rightly. You yeah, know? I think it would have been June. It was sort of like at the end of the season. So, like, yeah. let's face it, neither team were as strong as they could have been. Um, so it was like two 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 B teams playing, you know. But yeah. it was a bit of crack, and look, Ireland were playing, so I was happy, you know. Yeah, it's, it's always Luckily nice enough, to get I, one over. I've been able to get to a lot of Irish games over the years. Then being based in Europe, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I saw the I saw the playoff down in um, in Bosnia, uh, oh, but I was actually. with my Bosnian friends, so I actually saw the goal, but all the Irish fans couldn't see it because of the fog that night. Was yeah, it was way up the other end, and nobody could see it. Was the I was fog, actually yeah. at the right end because I could actually see the goal, you know. God, oh, well, there you go. We're the few Irishmen to actually see the goal that decided that game, you know. Um, yeah. You mentioned there earlier on, uh, just just in passing, and I found it really funny because you mentioned, oh, I started GEA Club, and then you went on to something else. The GEA has always been a sort of a huge part of your life, Tony. When you went to Mastics first, I mean, what was it that gave you the idea that, Jesus, they could do a bit of gas around here? Yeah, um, well, I'd been very involved in the GA in Dublin, um, in a, a little club called Kula, um, who were a little club when I got involved. Um, huge now are they yeah and they, at the time I remember they had uh, I think it was uh, two and a half hurling teams and, and about one and a half adult football teams when I say a half like there was a lot of ducking and diving to get a second or a third team out and they'd won maybe I think it was one juvenile team at the time and we realised like even the previous year or whatever they, they'd won a county hurling championship but there was no juvenile section coming along behind it. They had sort of depended on a Christian Brothers school in, in Dunleary and a few other schools as, as feeders and they closed and all of a sudden the club had nothing. Mm-hmm. So I remember um, with a few other guys uh, were involved in what we used to call the hall on a Saturday morning and we set up a sort of a juvenile section and um, I suppose to cut a long story short, I, I got very involved in the club. Um, I'd obviously, I had four lads of my own, so that was obviously the initial motivation for, for getting involved. I, I hadn't been involved as an adult in a GA club. I'd, I'd played a bit in school and a bit yeah. as a juvenile, and then I'd sort of moved away from it. I was doing other things. Um, I, I sort of left school. I went to work on pirate radio and was involved in a campaign to legalise CB radio in Ireland and a whole lot of different things. I was always a joiner, you know, yeah. joined things and got involved in things, you know whether it was that or Amnesty International, whatever it might have been, I was always involved in things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, you know, so we, we got that set up. And sort of what brought it home to me was I flew home from Myanmar, uh, Myanmar, um, for 18 hours in Ireland to see Kula playing an All-Ireland Club uh, final and win it. Um, well, I just can't remember the year now. What was it? It's about 10 years ago, eight years ago, something like that. Yeah, it's only a few uh, years ago, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, so like it cost me, I suppose, the guts of about two thousand euros to get back from Myanmar, and I had to fly home basically on a weekend from Myanmar to Ireland to go to the club final and leave again about ten hours after the game. God Almighty, that's dedication to the club all the same. Ah, uh, but that's with this club. Club is everything, you know. Well, that's the thing. It has a habit of getting under your skin, you know. Now the only problem I have with that is that you and me, I would be the same here in Stockholm. We both started clubs in the cities that we wound up in, and that kind of thing. And sometimes mm-hmm. not everybody else takes it as seriously as we do. Does that drive you up the wall when you're trying to find volunteers? Um, and, and... I suppose it did initially. Um, I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I'm a quick learner. <laughs> and I sort of got used to, okay, um, the first year or two I was out here, and I remember because I'd been involved in Dublin GA in Leinster, I was on Secretary Coaching and Games uh, Committee in Leinster, mm-hmm. uh, when it came out, uh, the then Leinster Chairman, Liam O'Neill, who went on to be European President, and in fact is actually the Honorary President of, of Gaelic Games Europe, the, the European mm-hmm. Board, uh, Liam had said, well, you know, we're, we're, they'd started this uh, policy of, of link, uh, twinning, twinning they call it, twinning um, a, prov- a province in Ireland with different overseas units, as they call mm. it overseas. They still do a lot of the time, even though I've, I've been fighting the battle for 20 years to stop calling it overseas. 
because I, I call it international. As far as I'm concerned, at this stage, Ireland is overseas. It's the one, you know, that's the large rock in the middle of the ocean, whereas I'm on the mainland, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so a lot of people in GA don't take that very well as a joke you know I've learned to be careful who I say it to there's a lot of people in the GA who don't take take many of your jokes very well Tony because I think true, there's a certain, there's yeah, a well, kernel I've never been known for hiding behind a bush you know <laughs> no but there's a kernel of truth in a lot of those things because we do we do see things differently from people we who are do. sitting in Crow Park you know and yeah. and we face a whole bunch of different challenges and that now yeah. when you started off in Maastricht you, you can never do these things on your own much and also I'll give you great credit for what you've done but no. you can never do these who was involved with you then in starting off? Um, so there were principally two other lads, um, uh, one from Clonmel in Tipperary and one from Sally Noggin in Dublin, who was raised about 500 metres away from me. But we never met each other and didn't know each other until we got to Maastricht. We were probably, we we're in the same parish, but probably, if you know what I mean, different sides of the tracks, you know, if yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. So uh, Chris Marley, he, he was a he was a chef uh, and still is a chef uh, here in Maastricht. He was uh, working in, in the Irish pub at the time. And Shay was actually um, the barman in the Irish pub. And that's where I met them. Hmm. Uh, we got chatting about it, said we'd give it a lash. And should we talk to anyone we could in, into joining up? So, you know, went and talked to the rugby club, got used to their grounds. Um, and, you know, started out small and started building. I, I think we'd... We managed to get ten players together for the for the first tournament, which was, if I remember correctly, up in Amsterdam, outside Amsterdam, Amstelveen, mm-hmm. and uh, we put out a team and um, sort of yeah kept kept building, you know, uh, and that that was fine. We went along ground for a few years. Um, I got very involved in the European scene very quickly mm-hmm. uh, because again, Liam O'Neill had asked me to get involved. Like, could I do liaison for this sort of twinning arrangement? Yeah, and when I went to do liaison. We, I went to try and contact the secretary of the European board and then discovered he'd emigrated to Canada about six months previously and uh, hadn't been replaced. So let's face it, Europe, European GA wasn't, probably wasn't as developed as it certainly wasn't as developed as it is now. Yeah. Um, so I got involved and within a few weeks, I was county secretary, European county in GA terms. Yeah. And I ended up doing 10 years as secretary for the European GA. Um, and then you know, went on you know, part of that, we managed to get a seat on um, the Central Council GA. Uh, so we served as the first Central Council delegate. And uh, I also went back into it a few years as chairman. Then I took a, a year off um, from the European board. Um, and at the time, the, the, cl- the club in, in Maastricht had sort of, it had gone backwards a lot and, you know, wasn't fielding on, on a regular basis and things, partly because I, I wasn't getting involved as much as I used to. I was now wrapped up in the European stuff. And of course, I'd been away for, for periods as well, which meant that it had declined. Um, so, um, you know, Chris and Shay were getting older and, you know, a lot of people we'd recruited would have been our own age and, you know, they were getting older and starting to get married, have families, things like that. So um, when I stepped down off the European board, I started having a look around and I realised that over the years, without actually realising it, there was more and more Irish people arriving in the university. Mm. So we're starting to get a few students and things uh, joining the club. Um, so, you know, sat back, had to think about it and then realised that, well, you know, this is actually our, our best bet is to become a student orientated club in that there's a constant feed of players coming in every year. Um, but that doesn't prevent other people joining. And, you know, and we are getting more recruitment now because, you know, there's one or two employers here who are recruiting a lot of Irish people. Mercedes have their call centre for the whole of Europe here. Mm. And since Brexit, all the English language services have to be provided by Irish people for because they can't recruit uh, British people. Um, so there's more and more Irish arriving. So, you know, with streams like that, and then, as I say, there, there's more and more Irish students attending European universities. Mm. Um, so, again, I'll be, you know, I'm starting to see that. So... We identified the fact that, you know, working with the university would be a good thing. So over the past few years, we've actually become a student sports association within the university, which means that they look after it. Um, so they, they will pay all our pitch rentals and things like that. And we're obviously based within the university, so it's good for recruitment. And the numbers are great at the, at the moment, I have to say. And mm. I suppose there's other little bonuses in that the university have now created. Uh, as far as I know, the first um, your coaching paid coaching position in Europe so uh, I work all of four hours per week now uh, for the Maastricht University as their Gaelic game sports coach. And so you'd be out there. And do you know, are they sort of club members, people who signed up to play for the term or for the year that you'd yeah. be coaching? Um, so yeah. what we do is like like uh, a lot of, you know, you have to put your university hat on if you remember how far back. I actually never went to university in Ireland. So 
Uh, but yeah. if you're, there's a freshers week in most universities. So here they call it income, yeah. income week. Um, one of that day, one of the days they have a sports fair. Um, so we set up alongside the rugby club, the soccer club, you know, the um, mountaineering club. Uh, the biggest club is actually the rowing club. It's huge. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I think they do a lot more drinking than rowing, actually. But there you go. <laughs> they usually do. Well, right? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's very student uh, orientated. So, um, yeah, so we would do recruitment at, at that fair every year. And, um, you know, you know, usually we're beside the uh, the cheerleading club, uh, which is yeah, uh, makes the day go faster anyway. Um, <laughs> So we, we they're building human towers uh, with lots of um, you know young people climbing on each other's shoulders and in the meantime we're having penalty competitions beside them you know I'm trying to knock uh, fellas over and that kind of thing yeah so but it's actually got to the stage now where people who've been here are passing the word back mm. so for instance there's a program in Queens every year uh, masters in public health management they're now applying to the club before they come over and in fact we're helping them to get accommodation and things every year. So yeah. it's it, it's changed the orientation of the club, but it's actually strengthened the club. The frustrating thing, of course, is a huge churn in players every year. Yeah, but that's yeah. life, you know. Um, the nice thing is it's not exclusively Irish. In I think at the moment we have about 12 nationalities involved. Super. So, yeah, it's something you it, I, I often say this to people. It's something you wouldn't see happening in Ireland, but we would get adults coming to learn our games in Europe. Mm. Um, that never happens in Ireland. You never like you don't just decide when you're thirty in Ireland. Ah, I'd like to play a bit of GAA and walk yeah. down the road to the club. It, it generally what's doesn't the, happen. What's you know? the hardest part of that for you as a coach, Tony? Because we've worked. Obviously, you and I have worked together, and we've mm. had this discussion many times. But just for the audience, because I always found teaching the solo was to the point now where I don't just don't teach it. Like it's just take your hop, hand past the bloody ball, and then just you know move the ball up the pitch that way. Yeah. Kind of thing. Well. You see, I, I did a fair bit of coaching of kids. Mm. So the way I approach it is, it's like kids coming down for the first time. You just start at the basics and I run them through the basics and I do teach them the solo and uh, and they do get it, you know. Now they yeah. can look a bit ungainly. Um, uh, I remember um, the year before last week, an Indian chap, uh, Drew, who's actually now down in Lisbon and joined the Lisbon club when he went down there. Wow. Um, but Drew was super flying fast, one of the fastest players I've ever seen. Um so the solo used to like sometimes go up twice as high as him and come back down, you know. But yeah. everyone adapts, and you know, if you keep at it, it's like they say: if you put it, if you put in the hours, you get there. Yeah. Um. And even I mean, that's football. We started hurling last year. We put out a hurling team and a camogie team for the first time last year. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing to see people adapt to the hurling. Now, of course, the Irish who have years of hurling in them will look a bit better on the field, but. You know, I, I've seen it not just in Massey, but in other clubs around Europe. The, the likes of Zurich was set up by Swiss people, not Irish people. Mm. And they were a hurling club when they started, you know. Yeah. So anyone can adapt to any sport if you put enough time in. Yeah. Um, in all the years that you've been involved in, in European GAA, because we're really, we're only touching the tip of the iceberg here, Tony. You started the club in Maastricht. You've been on the board for God knows how long. You've refereed, you've coached, you've done absolutely everything. What's the biggest change that you've seen in the last sort of you know, what, 18 years or so of knocking around in European GAA now? I suppose um, the number of clubs and the organisation of everything and the fact that you know, back home, and like I used to find I was often on my own back in Ireland, you know, carrying a, carrying a flag, not just for Europe, but for other international units as well. And, mm. you know, I would have been, um, you know, close enough to people in, like in Asia. I used to referee the Asian games every year as well. Yeah. Um, and like they, they'd have a lot of, you know, clubs with smaller numbers like ourselves and, and they play nine and 11 aside games, uh, which we do in Europe most of the time, although we have now a growing 15 aside championship. Um but I suppose, yeah, one we're getting taken we're we're taken a lot more seriously by the GA in general. There's now mm. a, a section called World GAA, etc. Um, I remember if you go back, I remember I was at a congress down in Killarney. Sean Kelly was president or was incoming president, and we were trying to get a seat for Europe on the Central Council, and um, you know it, 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 they were trying to put it off and defer it and whatever. And I, I forced it to a vote. Now we didn't win that year. Mm. Uh, but we actually got a majority, but not two thirds. So I had to come back at it the, the following year, two years later, we got a seat. Mm. And then I always looked at it as an education process. It was my job to educate people in the GA hierarchy about how different it is abroad. You mm. can't just take the Irish scene and replicate it somewhere, which for the first year or two, I was sort of thinking along those lines. You know, you were thinking with your Irish head on mm. and how would I get this to the way I know it is? Mm. But then I realized, no, that's the wrong way to go. 
Uh, we have to do what works for, for people in Europe. And I suppose, so they're taking it. He asked me what was the biggest change. I think they're, they're taking us more seriously. We're getting better organized and the growth has been phenomenal. Mm. Uh, when I come over, the, the board was started in 1999 with four or five clubs. And when I come over, I think there were 14 teams playing seven, seven aside rounds of one European championship every year. Mm. We now have, um, you know, I'm now the development officer, so we're dealing with new clubs. We have seven new clubs last year. We already have three this year. Uh, we have a new club for the Nordics area now starting in uh, Hillurud, just outside Copenhagen. Lovely. Um, so uh, that was the last one I was on to, actually. Uh, but yeah, during the year, and uh, during the past year, we, you know, the Reykjavik Keltars, new club in Iceland. You yeah. know, we have four clubs in Russia now. Um, we actually have a 107, going on 108 clubs now, over 24 countries in Europe. And now, if that's not a big change, I don't know what it is, you know. Yeah, it's been absolutely amazing because I think when we started, there was probably, there was an awful lot less than that anyway when we started in Stockholm. And of course, we have to say as well, the clubs come and go because, you know, in certain towns or whatever, one or two key people like yourself may leave and come mm. back again. You know, the one thing I wanted to ask you, right, and this is a problem that rugby in Scandinavia has, and it has a little bit in South America and that kind of thing as well. How do you ensure that your players in Maastricht get enough games? Do you benefit from being there with Belgium and Germany and having clubs <laughs> close by? Because, you know, essentially it's at the point now where my club in Stockholm I really should cause around the club make a split and start a new one so that we have a rival <laughs> on our doorstep kind of thing you know but just yeah. I haven't got the energy for it you know yeah yeah you have to excuse me I'm laboring with a bit, bit of a cold here but not to worry not to worry um, apparently it's not COVID or anything um, yeah I, I, you know I, I, one of the things that again there are different dynamics in Europe and one of the things I've realised over the years is there's different um, motivators for people being involved. Mm. Some want to play a lot. Others just want to play now and again. Mm. Um, in Benelux, obviously, we, we, we you know, uh, back in 2006, we had a meeting in the Irish Embassy in Brussels and we decided we'll try a, a pilot scheme of regions mm. uh, for a year or two. And technically that pilot scheme is still ongoing, but the regions have become very established in Europe. So we're in Benelux region. Um, and that covers obviously Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, uh, parts of the western side of Germany. I, I, I stopped calling it West Germany. I realised that that was the wrong <laughs> terminology. Your inner uh, diplomat is coming out, Tony. <laughs> yeah, and, and where we are in Maastricht, we're right in the centre of the region, and we have the only full-size GA pitch, uh, astroturf floodlit pitch in Europe. So we're in a little bit of a hub. So it's it's quite a, you know we host quite a few things uh, over mm. the year. Um, and it, like in Benelux now, a lot of the tournaments, if, if they're in somewhere like Maastricht, you can drive in the morning, go, go to a tournament, play, and drive back in the evening. Because mm. we're two, three hours from, you know, from most, there's one or two clubs who, who'd have to overnight no matter where they go. Hamburg, for some reason, just don't really sit nicely into any of the regions. Mm. Um, so they'd have a lot more um, travel to do. But nearly all the other clubs, I mean, within a one-hour radius of Maastricht, I have Leuven, uh, or Louvain, as some Irish would know it, mm. um, Brussels, Cologne, Dusseldorf, um, Nijmegen to be a bit further, Eindhoven. And then, you know, you put out the radius to two hours um, and you bring in the likes of Luxembourg, Amsterdam, The Hague, Groningen a little bit further away. Um, but you'd have, you know, also you'd have Darmstadt, um, Frankfurt are just a little bit further as well. But, you know, mm -hmm. so it's much easier for us to travel to each other. So one of the, one of the innovations that we're trying, and I'm now chairman of the Benelux region as well. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> multiple hats, you know, the way Phil, you know. Um, so like we're looking at innovations, like starting our tournaments at 11, 1130. Mm. And, and, you know, uh, and then playing till six so that everybody can travel to and from on the day, keeps the cost down, keeps mm. it more interesting for people to do that, you know. Do you have a league system going there, Tony? Because like one of the things that we looked at, now yeah. the distances are slightly too big. You'd have to be flying yeah. in to Lulio and playing your game there and then coming back again. And that's a prohibitive cost for many clubs. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, at that is a killer. And that's why a lot of, you know, a lot of the regions would have three or four rounds a year. Um, what's happening now is that in, in, in Benelux, for instance, we're looking at playing more and more games, more regular games. Mm -hmm. And um, the hurling, of course, is, is, is quite active in the Benelux region. So from March till October, November, with the exception of August, most players here can probably play every two weeks in something. Okay, so there's a game for them every two weeks. That's pretty good. Yeah, game. 
And because, we, you know, we're competing with other sports as well. And we should never lose sight of that. We can be a bit arrogant sometimes within GA. We only think about ourselves. Mm. But, you know, if, if for the non-Irish when we're recruiting, for someone coming along to us, it's another sport. They don't have the linkage we have to it. So our sport has to compete with rugby, soccer, anything, any other field sport for, you know, for recruitment. Um, so if we're not offering regular games, people will go, you know, if they're very active and, and they they want to be a, a player in something, mm. there's there's other options for them. And I, I've realized that over the years. So, you know, you have to keep providing for it. It's why we have two training sessions a week as well. Mm. You know, a lot of clubs will just have one, but we'll have two, one on, on a midweek evening and one on the weekend. Mm. Um, just to try and cater for everybody for all the interests and then when there's no games to be working on skills but also keeping people interested mm. and it was particularly interesting to see some of it now during uh, the pandemic um, I know Sweden took a very different approach to the pandemic oh, the Dutch had a few little differences as well so after the initial um, few weeks of sort of panic lockdown um, they realised that well young people didn't suffer unduly when, if they had COVID mm. so under 26s could train and play team sports well, they weren't playing away, but they could train away at yeah. team sports. That was hugely important for, like, I had 50 or 60 students here who were basically studying from their rooms. The only time they got out was to go to football training every week. Yeah. So in terms of their mental and physical health, uh, being involved in the GA was a big part of that. And um, I, I know because I'm still in touch with a lot of them, they went away and said it was one, that, despite it being one of the roughest years of life, from talking to their friends who were on maybe Erasmus programs or whatever elsewhere in Europe, None of them had anything like what they had in Maastricht, which kept them, you know, kept them sane and, you know, really looked after the mental health. And I'm quite a mental health um, advocate as well, because, uh, you know, I'm bipolar and I, I've suffered and, you know, um, su survived to two attempts on my own life yeah. um, things like that. So, you know, I, I'm big into things like mental health and, uh, you know, you'd often spot one of the students who's struggling a bit and, you know, you just go and have a chat with them and things like yeah. that, you know. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm a long way from where the question that you threw in there, Phil. No, but it's still, they're still very important things, Tony, because we can't forget either that the, the network that the GEA provides is so vital, not just to students, but to people like myself and yourself. It's that mm. sense of connection. It's me meeting you twice a week at training or me meeting you refereeing at a tournament mm. and checking in with each other and that kind of thing and just seeing how we're doing and that. Because, you know, yeah. you I've, I've been aware privately of, of your struggles mm -hmm. in the past for many years. And the fact that we can have that relationship and that you know that I'm here for you and vice versa yeah, it, yeah it's a like i mean that is essentially the essence of the gea it's it's taking care of one yeah of the i mean look at you know uh, I'm, I'm look I, I love an awful lot of sports and i go and see a lot of sports and you know it doesn't have to be a major tournament for me to or a, a you know a big game or i was at the mvv match in the dutch second division last friday night you know yeah um we're going well we're in third place you know there's an outside chance promotion for the first time i think in 30 or 40 years <laughs> of course yeah the went you know, they, uh, they, they only managed to draw the game last week, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. You know, it's, it's only one game out, out of a long season. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, it is huge. And, you know, other sports don't have what the GA has. And I say that without sounding conceited or, mm. you know, I'm trying not to be ignorant or whatever. But from what I can see on the ground, yes, of course, you'll have great camaraderie, you know, like, I mean, the rugby club, I would see. And, you know, they, they'll all be together and all. It's very much a student-based rugby club. But when they leave and they move on, they still have a connection with that club. So it's not just the GA. Some other sports have it. But the GA seems to do it better. It seems to be part of our part of our DNA. It's mm. more than sport. Yeah. And it's often hard to put your finger on it, but it is a sense of community. It is a sense of helping each other out. Um, you know, and, and I see that and I know that. And, yeah, you know, for most of the time when I'm a master, the club members, I, you know, very few of them would own a car or anything like that. So I get to do a lot of removals and, you know, picking people up from airports when they've missed the last bus, you know, you name yeah. it, things like that. But you're happy to do it because that's part of what we are, you know? Yeah. Do you notice then that that sort of becomes contagious, that the, so the non-Irish players who may not come to you with an innate understanding of this particular Gaelic games culture, do you find that they pick that up? Because I know there's one or two girls now down in Belgium yeah. who started playing football with us up here and they they continued playing when they moved back after their years of study here mm. and that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, like, you know, when I look at the committee of the club now, it's there's only myself and a couple of other Irish on it. Mm. Um, the chairman is German, who's uh, Alex. He, he started playing hurling in Satanta in Berlin, came to university in Maastricht. First thing, he, he was in touch with me before he even arrived. Mm. Within a year, 
he's chairing the club. He's a young guy, you know, he's early 20s. He's yeah. chairing the club. Um, secretaries, German, um, uh, a couple of Dutch people on the committee, you know. So they get involved. And after about a year, you wouldn't, you know, apart from the accent, you wouldn't know they're not Irish. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's because amazing. it is something that it just gets it. I'm from traveling to tournaments and meeting like-minded people, uh, and and then when they get involved a little bit and run the club, they realize what's behind it and all that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a wonderful organization that we have, and we take it for granted. It doesn't mean it's perfect, and it doesn't mean I'll ever stop critiquing it from the inside. Hmm. Uh, but you know, it is a wonderful organization, and, and I'm very glad that you know somehow stumbled into it along the way. You know. Hmm. What's the biggest challenge facing Gaelic games outside of Ireland? The biggest challenge that we have in Europe. Now, I'm, I've been in Europe for many, many years and been involved a lot. I don't know what the challenges are in Europe or the US or whatever. But what would you say is the biggest challenge facing us all? Um, you know, there's one challenge that we, we, you know, we, we've yet to, to get across, and that is becoming uh, more recognised. People, you know, outside of, of of, of of the players as and people are involved in, in European GA, which would be, I don't know when you add it up now, four or five thousand people, I guess. Mm. There's a lot of other people in Europe, you know, um, mm. who have never heard of Gaelic games. Um, so you know, increasing the awareness of it, and I know there was a you know the, when they they brought in the, the subscription service GA Go, that was brilliant for the Irish people who could exactly. see the games. It did nothing to promote our games with non-Irish people. I am on the record as describing it as a tax on emigration. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I mean, there, you know, the, you know, it's the way sport has gone now. You know, all sports are sort of doing streaming and things like that. Yeah. And in fairness to GA, we're, we're up there again without realizing it. We're you know in the first more or less wave of it because there's a lot more now. Mm. Um, and certainly, it was great for for it. Um, you know, in, in it allowed me to see games I wouldn't have otherwise seen. Uh, but you know, for years I've been saying, look, you know, you got to get sports onto terrestrial TV across Europe, and you'll mm -hmm. grow, and it will grow because any sport that's seen grows. It's the yeah. ones that are not seen that die. Yeah, um, and, and that's that's my view. So I think that's still a challenge. Is is that another challenge is to becoming recognised at official levels in Europe? Mm -hmm. Um. And I'm a long time going on about this one, but it hasn't changed, even though, you know, there is a the, the knowledge and awareness of the issue is changing. Mm. Um, and that's becoming Olympic recognized sport. Yeah. Um, or becoming. And why I say Olympics is because when you become an Olympic recognized sport, it means that other national authorities will recognize you as a sport. Mm. You know, you come along to, a, you know, a, a, a municipality somewhere in Europe and say, we, you know, we need a pitch to play GA on. They say, what's GAA? What's Gaelic Games? What's Gaelic mm. Football? What's, you know, you go to Hurling or something, you blow their mind altogether. I have a standard, I have a, I have a, a little, um, on the front part of, the front of the phone, I have a little link to YouTube and it goes directly to what is Gaelic Football? What is Hurling videos? Because yep. I use it so often. I've shown it to so many people over the years. Uh, because, yeah, you need some trying to explain the game is very difficult. Show them 60 seconds of a game and all of a sudden they, they you know, they have a much better appreciation. Yeah. So, you know, it is up to GA. And I mean, they are making some moves there. You know, in the last couple of years, hurling's been recognized as um, living her uh, tangible heritage uh, by UNESCO. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, that, that that was interesting. It's wonderful. It certainly helps because you can say, look, this is a UNESCO recognized sport. Um, not quite what we need, though, um, mm. because you know if you if you become a recognised sport, all of a sudden it opens loads of doors. Yeah, in that you get doors to funding, certainly to facilities in the first place, because most of Europe uh, people in Ireland don't realise about people in Europe too. Most European um, countries, there's a responsibility to provide facilities for sport as part mm. of the law. Yeah. So if you're a recognised sport, they have to provide a facility for you to play on. Mm. So you don't have to go begging for time off a you know rugby club or a soccer club or whatever. Nearly all the facilities in Europe are owned by the public authorities. Yeah. And to get into them, you have to be a recognised sport. Um, and therefore, you need to have recognition. How do you get recognition? You become an Olympic recognised sport. And of course, most people think about the Olympics in terms of the competition sports. Mm. But there are about 80 sports which are Olympic sports, which are not part of the Olympic Games. Yeah, yeah, but they're recognised by the Olympic Council. They're recognised. You know thing. all about it, Phil. You know, the likes of uh, floorball and bandy and things like that, which are yep. up in the Nordics, which, you know, a lot of people have never heard of. You know, people don't realise, like, tug of war is an Olympic recognised sport. Yeah. And it features in another games called the World Games, which yep. are like 
the Olympic Games for the sports who can't make it into the Olympic Games. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, most sports are, are not concerned with that. Mm. So I suppose we, I mean we don't have an awareness of it. But that's the thing. So in Ireland, you know, Croke Park, we call it Croke Park. It's after this the best facility that we have for the game. No, mm. they don't have to compete. You know, if you were in a club, I'm sure like St. Vincent's would be our club and the family at home, and mm-hmm. there's two or three pitches down there, and there's access to more yeah. pitches, and the same thing for Kula and Crave Kieran and, and the Fian and the whole lot. Mm. But like when we when you get outside of there, like you know, I mean that was the biggest challenge that, that we had in the beginning was mm-hmm. just finding somewhere to play at all. And that's before you get involved in goals or booking a whole day for a tournament or that kind of thing because yeah, they do yeah. they look at you like you have two heads when you're doing that you know yeah, is that yeah. any closer because I, I'm only asking you this now Tony because a diplomat an Irish diplomat said it to me recently that it's something that's up on the agenda now that they're they're trying to explore like in you know the various different embassies are trying to explore how they can help us to get access mm. to these facilities so is this more a sort of yeah. a governmental thing or is it a GEA thing would you say well you know it, 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 it's, it's both and, and you know there may well be other parties that can help do it as well but um, it, it's a matter of of deciding that we want to do it, and I think there's a growing appreciation among certain people in GA anyway that it has to be done. And I know there, you know, there there's a new, um, well, I'm saying you know, um, the last few years, uh, Charlie Harrison, the former Sligo player, is now the international games, um, uh, the international sort of uh, manager in Croke Park, and they're, they're now getting more staff in there um, to to look after things like grants. There's a the Department of Foreign Affairs, GA funded grant scheme every year and things like that. So there's much more awareness of the international growth. The Department of Foreign Affairs are certainly seeing the value of it because, again, part of their role is to look after the Irish diaspora. One of the best ways of connecting with the Irish diaspora is using the GAA. So they now fund GAA activities uh, through grants and through the provision now, and not, not in Europe yet, but in Britain and the US, for instance, they would fund... 50% of, of um, full-time coaches' salaries and things like that. Wow. So it's 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 something that's growing. Yes, of course, I wanted to grow faster, but then I'm always in a hurry. Um, mm. Even though it should, should be slowing up. You know, hit, hitting 60 next birthday, so it should be slowing <laughs> up. But if I slow up, I think I might stop altogether. So that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, that, you know, so th- there is there. So I think the GA are more aware of it. Uh, certainly the Irish Foreign Ministry is more aware of it. And, and and we are working better together. I mean, this year, for instance, um, we're working on a new three-year strategy for European um, uh, the, for the Gaelic Games Europe. And we had our strategy session in the embassy in Paris, which is Ireland's finest embassy abroad. I, I'm a former diplomat as well. One of the many ministries I worked in was was press officer in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So um, I, I'd be aware, like, uh, you know, of, of a lot of people in foreign affairs and, and their thinking. And certainly it's a lot easier now to work with the local embassy, no matter what country you are in Europe, because it's now on the agenda. And, you know, when all the ambassadors go back for their thinkings during the year, the GA are often one of the organisations that addresses all the ambassadors when they go yeah. back. How did you manage to get, you mentioned earlier in the conversation and I sort of let it slide and I have to come back to it. You have what is pretty much the only 15-a-side Gaelic football pitch in Europe. And I remember when you got that built, I, got, I have no idea how we do Like, how did you manage to get that? Like, yeah, and to well, get the resources the now. Um, there's a There's a grass 15-a-side pitch over in Wren, so they were able to host the 15-a-side finals this year. Thankfully, it was one less job to do. You didn't have that hassle last yeah? year. Um, but uh, yeah, we still have a lot to do. I mean, most of the 15-a-side activity is in Benelux, where we happen to have more stronger, bigger clubs. Mm. So, um, yeah, um, what actually happened was that in Maastricht, there was about, um, I suppose, I don't know, 15, 20 different locations where you had one soccer pitch, another soccer pitch. Uh, you know, every little sort of community within the city had its own facility. or mm. you know, Some of them were multi-field facilities. So about, ooh, what would it be now, about 14, 15 years ago, they decided on a strategy of reducing the number of facilities in Maastricht, but concentrating them in a number of what they called quality multi-sports centres. Okay. Now, at the time, we were cooperating with the rugby club. We were operating out of the um, a 40-foot container, <laughs> as we used to call them, you know, when, it, when the old shipping containers, you know, yeah. that's all the equipment was in that. So they, they were going to develop the complex where the rugby club were, and um, while they were in the talks about that, I, I just had this mad idea. If they're building a rugby pitch and it was going to be an AstroTurf pitch fenced in with floodlights, mm. if they just stretch it a bit, we get the length of a GA pitch because they've try zones behind the goals. Mm. And, and you know, I make it the maximum width that they can yeah. uh, because we're putting a running track around the outside of it. So 
just been in the right place at the right time, Phil, and uh, having the uh, temerity to knock on the door and say, hey, by the way, is there any chance we could do something here? And if you do it, this will draw people to mastery because it'd be the only pitch in Europe. I did a bit of a sales job on it. Of course, yeah. Um, and, you know, the council, uh, or the Gimincha, they, they were delighted to actually uh, work with us on it uh, because they could see the value as well. Mm. That and, and and you know in in the years following that, I mean, we hosted the the, the pan European uh, football finals, men's and women's, which attract you know maybe fifty clubs, seven eight hundred players. We 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 hosted that eight times in eleven years in Maastricht, yeah. based around that facility. Nearly all the fifteen aside championship games over the years have all been played in Maastricht because mm. we have the pitch. And again, and one of the battles that we fought, um, you know, played a little part in it maybe, um, was in getting access for our club teams into competitions like the All Ireland competi- club competitions. Yeah. So there are men's winners now going to the Leinster Junior Championship. Um, the ladies' winners do even better. They get a playoff against the British champions to go right into an All Ireland quarter final. Uh, and indeed, twice they've qualified for that. Now, we haven't got past the quarterfinal stage yet, but, um, mm. you know, twice uh, the team from Belgium have actually done well and beaten the British. Mm. Uh, ironically, both times when they were away, the, the fixture alternates between home and away. The home game is always a Maastricht, the away game is somewhere in Britain. Mm. Um, uh, so they've done well. And then on the men's front, you know, we it started with football. Last year was the first year um, that Europe entered into the Leinster hurling uh, competition. Now, as it happened last year, Amsterdam did the double and represented us very well. Beat by a couple of points in both games. Mm. That was uh, last year was extremely close. I remember following that yeah. game online because you couldn't get a stream anywhere or anything else like that. And I was following the game on Twitter and it was driving me up the bloody wall. And then they lost by a couple of points at the end of it. Yeah. Do you, do you have to shift the rugby posts then on uh, on yeah, that? What field? we actually do um, when we're building it, we had to come up with a methodology for that. Um, mm. So again, we got a grant to supply goalposts and things from the GA. Mm. Um, and we donated them to the city of Maastricht, um, which means that they're now responsible for maintaining and storing them. <laughs> they um, have to paint them and store them and all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we got the ambassador down to hand them over officially and the whole lot, you know. Lovely. Um, so what actually happens is the, the rugby posts are uh, literally set down into two slides, uh, two, sorry, two shoots. Mm. How would I put it? It's like two um, plastic two tubes, tubes down the ground. Yeah. So we we have handles that we put on the sides of the posts, and you get about six uh, six people. You lift them up. We we you know drop them down, carry them off to one side, and then we have um, GA posts which are put together. Um, there you know we have to assemble them. Um, there's yeah two sides, crossbar, backbar, yeah. and upright extensions, and put the nets on. So it takes about half an hour to put them together and take them down again. But yeah. we literally put them onto the pitch. Um, and then we have, a, you know, a, a various sets of those. So we can actually have, in the location where we are, there is a baseball diamond. So we can actually put a small, um, maybe a seven-a-side, nine-a-side pitch across the middle of the baseball diamond. Yeah. And then there are one, two, three, four, five soccer pitches. Um, and again, we can adapt them for the 11-a-side games or nine-a-side hurling, 11-a-side men's football. Yeah. Um, so we we actually have three or four sets of uh, GA posts, um, mm. and then we we can you know sometimes put uprights on soccer goals, or you know we can even you know even the rugby goals that are there you can lower the crossbar on them. Although we we actually prefer to have our own GA posts now. They just, yeah, yeah, just look better and are better, you know. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Like it's amazing so, when you see these developments, it's, it's, and, you know, and 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 it's reasonably located because people don't realize you know Maastricht is a small town, mm. but within a one hour radius. Radius uh, drive is seven airports, Jeez. which makes oh, it very right. accessible. Yeah. You know? yeah. So you don't. Uh, plus you, you, tra- you train services from you know you you, you know it with one change you can get from Brussels to or you know some of the German cities or whatever and you just change in the edge and you're in Maastricht or if you come from the south, uh, come from the north of Holland you know there's brilliant train services like what again people in Ireland don't realize a lot of people here don't own cars. You know, we just yeah, have so you don't need them. transport. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Like, I mean, we've had that situation in Copenhagen before where last year in the Copenhagen tournament, I was playing a little bit and my daughter was playing. We stayed in Malmö and we got the train over on the morning. We got then got yeah. the bus out, you know. And w- what I didn't realise was there was a few lads had a few drinks the night before and I ended up starting the first game at nine o'clock in the morning. I wasn't prepared for that, Tony. I can tell you that much, you know. <laughs> uh, where, where's the future, in your opinion? I've always said that the future of our games is with people whose names we don't yet know. And yeah. they're not necessarily Irish people. So no. how how can we involve more people? How can we teach them the games? Not just to be competent, but to excel. Because you and I have both seen some excellent non-native players that have really yeah. dominated the games at the time that they played. But it's not always that we can hold on to them. 
Yeah, and, and I've seen it much more, by the way, with, uh, you know, on, on the ladies' football side mm. than maybe on the men's side, partly because I find girls much more accommodating and yeah. bringing people yeah. in. Mm. Um, and, and, yeah, um, I find the Irish lads sometimes don't accommodate uh, newcomers as much, you know, to give yeah. them the chance to develop. But that's just because their their skill levels or whatever. Um, and I think you're dead right. You know, there will be a future. Look at... You know, one of the things that I pushed for for years and eventually it came about was a, a World Gaelic Games. Yeah. Uh, so that now happens every three years. This year we're going to Derry uh, in July. Um, last time in Waterford in 2019, I, th I, th I forget how many teams were there, around 70-something teams, of which I think 29 were from Europe. Mm. Um, and at the time I was chair in Europe, I was very proud. I ended up managing the team at the last minute. Uh, Native-born native Iberian women's team. Uh, their manager broke their leg, uh, bro broke her leg about a week beforehand, and it was too late to organise anyone. So we just stepped in and managed the team for the week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we had great crack, great crack. I, I think we won one game against. I think it was against our friend Alan Moore over in Russia with his Russian girls. The you know? Moscow Shamrocks, yeah, God, yeah, yeah. Um, But you know, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, it's definitely going to be in the future, and it is. You know, the way I would see it, possibly, you know, I used to be have the temerity to think that I knew what was going to happen in the future. Now mm. I think about possibilities. Yeah. I think one possibility is that you, you'll get a growing amount of Gaelic games in Europe and eventually you'll have national teams. For, you know, we've already had a few little, you know, I won't say, I shouldn't say little. We've already had the first international games, France against Italy, whatever. Mm. Um, so that it, it'll move, that'll move on. Till you know, we will have countries playing each other in the same way counties play each other in Ireland. We will have countries in Europe playing against each other. Um, there have been talks about whether we should have European teams in all Ireland competitions, starting maybe with hurling with you know going over and playing three rounds at Laurie Marner or whatever. And the GA said they facilitate it, it could all, all be played in Abbottstown and Dublin or whatever. I don't think we're that's necessarily the way to go yet. Um, because we would have terrible trouble pulling everyone together for training and things, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I think in time it will develop. You will have countries playing each other. I think one of the things that we may have to face up to is that if it becomes a really well-known sport across Europe, there will be a pressure um, for parts of it at least, or some levels of it to become professional or semi-professional. That would be a big issue to, to be addressed. But certainly if it's getting a lot of television coverage, with the coverage comes the possibility for revenue streams, etc. So maybe, you know, this might be almost, you know, heretical to, to say it in Irish terms, but maybe the likes of Europe is where GA might become semi-professional or something. And players wouldn't have to go all the way to Australia from Ireland uh, to make a living. You're, sw you're swearing in church now, Tony Vast. Have you, they'd be coming oh, I know, you? yeah. Now, having said that, I love the amateur ethos of the association and yeah. I'm not in any hurry to get rid of it. But I think sometimes you have to be realistic and say, can a purely amateur sport thrive on a worldwide basis in this day and age. Mm. It is one of the things. The coverage you, that other sports have. Yeah, so when you show people those videos, what is Gaelic football, what is hurling, and I always find when I show them to young fellas on football pitches here around Stockholm, that they look at it and they go, and then you tell them that they're all amateurs and they go, are you, are you mad? You know, playing hurling, Absolutely. not getting paid for it. You know, you want yeah. to pay me a million quid for it per game. Yeah. I, suppose, I mean, yeah. I used to say to people, like, here's the All-Ireland Final, there were 85,000 people at that, and they all go to work on Monday. Now, we know yeah. they don't. They go and celebrate for a week afterwards. But, of course. You know, te technically, there's employed, you know, although but these days you have to be almost a full-time student or a teacher to play uh, at county level, I think, you know, for yeah. the amount of time and commitment it takes, you know. You, you know my brother well. He's a teacher. He won't take kindly to that one either. We just keep <laughs> slandering people here as always, you know. Yeah. One final question for you, Tony, and thank you so mm -hmm. much for taking the time to talk to me. What do you see as your future in the games, like in the next oh, well, 10, 15, yeah, 20 like, years? My age, my best days are behind me. What's, what's my future? Um I, I like, what, what do you I, want I to do? Want to... What's what? What mountains are left to climb for you? I know there's no mountains in Holland anymore, but sure. Uh, well, would you believe it? I was only reading about the other week that they've now just near where I live. I live in the Dutch Hoeveland, the Dutch Highlands, they call it, yeah. uh, because there's a couple of peaks about 200 meters high. There you go. They have a they have a mountain walking trail between them. Believe it or not, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the most Dutch thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, now, you know what? What's the future? Look at you know. Um, in terms of personal stuff, I've ticked all my boxes. Um, you know, I don't have you know huge personal ambitions uh, other than to live a long life and, and be happy and, and 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 things like that. Um, and um, yeah, um, maybe to get married again in the future. Um, 
So a few, a few things, um, but in GA terms, I just want to see it continue to develop. Um, I have a passion for hurling. I'd love to see more hurling being played. Um, and, and that's happening, you know, year by year. I can see year on year, there's more and more teams playing. Um, of course, I want to see the continued growth. That's why I love being development officer because I'm working with people who are starting clubs now. And I think that's where I have something to contribute from the experience end of things and i can talk to people who are only approaching these things for the first time yeah and you know give them hints clues help them along the road sometimes you know encourage them when when, when they're facing into 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 challenges and things like that mm-hmm. and maybe you know think around it i may maybe working on on the strategy side in terms of again planning and looking forward now that you know i remember over the years we were scrimping and saving trying to get a few euros together we used to operate the whole of europe off a budget of uh 11,000 or 13,000 a year. Mm. So one of my challenges when I became in this chair was to raise the, raise the bar on that. And I managed to get the funding up to over 100 grand a year. And it's continued to increase. And we're doing sponsorship deals now, which are much different than it was 15, you know, 10, five years ago. Yeah. Um, because in the GA world, we're becoming more well-known. So it's easier to get, you know, I'm not saying it's easy to get sponsors. And I know sponsorship ops have worked very hard to get a sponsor. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're making progress on all fronts. And, I suppose it's a bit lame to say I want to see that progress continue on all fronts. Mm. And there'll be new fronts that we haven't even thought of yet. It is the thing. Um, and maybe one of those will be the challenge that you're talking about, you know? Exactly. And you'll be still stuck in there because I, I can't ever see you walking away from it. And I've got to take this opportunity in front of all these listeners, Tony, to say thank you for everything you've done for me, everything you've done for <laughs> Stockholm, the Nordic region, and for European Gaelic Games. And long may you run, my brother. And I'm hoping to see you very soon now when the snow has melted up here. But just don't say It's been me far too it. long. I, lo- I love going to Stockholm, you know, I, once I can get a mortgage before I go, it just keep me going for, for the week. Well, look, I, I, I know the treasurer here. We look after you a little bit better the next time you get here <laughs> but for now Tony Vass thanks so much for talking to me Phil great to talk to you Kerry back defending McManaman attacking and he's kicked and it's a free end a free kick to win the All-Ireland and they're going to bring up their goalkeeper Stephen Cluxton to see if he can put this one over the bar and win the title for Dublin for the first time since 1995. What drama in Croke Park. Well, there's extraordinary in her scene set before, and they took and talked about Stephen Cluxton, talked about his importance to the Dublin team, and talked about his ability to accurately, accurately kick frees from distance. Now he has the most you know, important kick of his career for Dublin, for the supporters. Let's see, can he hold his nerve? Stephen Cluxton, the fans try to hold their nerves in his 55th championship match. 15 points in his career so far. He's already got one today. The distance with the angle about 45 metres. Here he comes to win the All-Ireland. Cluxton, he's put it over the bar! And Dublin are in front by 112 to 111. Cluxton the hero and the two minutes of added time has been played and we now wait for the referee's whistle referee looks at his watch Kerry it's all over Dublin have won the All-Ireland the most dramatic the most wonderful of finishes Kerry beaten Dublin triumph what a triumph it's Stephen Cluxton who's done it as Dublin end a long barren spell of some 16 years and a first win in the final since 1995. We're rounding off our conversation with Tony Bass. Uh, with one of his favourite memories, I'm sure, and certainly one of my favourite memories, Stephen Cluxton kicking the point in injury time to beat Kerry to win the first All-Ireland since 1995. A team managed by my old schoolmate and my old Ardscourish teammate, Pat Gilroy, uh, who went on to do brilliant things in the game, not just for the for the footballers, but uh, he was part of the rebirth of Dublin hurling there as well for a few years and a very successful businessman and an extremely funny guy. Doesn't always come across in interviews that way uh, or when you see him on television or in the media or that kind of thing, but turn off the cameras and there's some crack to be had out of that lad altogether. 
Uh, we could probably do a, a little bit more of him in European GAA if he fancies moving over there. That is all we have for this week, right? But, gonna let you in a little secret. Gonna be a bonus podcast, lads. I've made up my mind. I have another another interview there. Won't be as long as this one, right? But there's another uh, podcast I'm gonna drop in the middle of the week. Uh, I'll give you no details. That's all. I will say that it will probably be Tuesday and uh, we shall rain these blessings down upon you, but there will be another one there. If you want to support the podcast, patreon.com forward slash man in Stockholm, right? Let this be the year that you decide to support independent creators like myself, the second captains, Blind Boy, the Tortoise Shack, whoever that happens to be, right? Get out there and throw a few bob after it. Back in the day, I used to spend a couple of euros in newspapers every day reading about sport. That time is gone. Most of it's out there on the internet for free. And these podcasts will always be free, right? But that means, that doesn't mean that they don't have value and it doesn't mean that they don't cost me money to produce them. So I'd really appreciate your support. The 70 million Irish people around the world, boys and girls, 70 million of us with Irish heritage, right? If a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of them can contribute to this podcast every month, it will make a huge difference to me and hopefully to everybody else who listens to them. Listen, Sharon, I'll let you go for the time being. I'll be back with a bonus podcast during the week and then another fascinating podcast with a man that I can't wait for you to hear from. Uh, next Saturday morning European time Saturday evening down in the Antipodes and Jesus knows whenever you might listen to it but get around to it as soon as you can listen take care of yourself take care of one another and I'll talk to you again soon good luck